0: Last week, we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan from Luke chapter 10, and today we're going to return to that same passage and pick up where we left off. And so if you have a Bible, I would love for you to find Luke chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along in the bulletin. We're going to read the same passage we read last week and continue thinking about what God would have us to take away from that. So let's pray, and then we'll read, we'll read God's Word together. Heavenly Father, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your Word remains forever because your Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. And I pray that your Word would work, that it would work um, in a miraculous way to show us our sin and show us our Savior, that as we read your Word and as your Spirit guides um, our hearts to Behold our Savior, uh, Lord, that you would uh, increase our love for you. And so do that work that only you can do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so Luke chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 25 and we'll read through verse 37. This is God's holy word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. May God write his word upon our hearts. So last week, we looked at this same passage and I gave you two principles. Uh, Two principles from this passage. And the first principle is loving others is a gospel issue. Loving others, loving our neighbor, is a gospel issue. The lawyer begins by asking Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And so the context for this entire passage, the setting for this entire parable, how we go about showing tangible love to others is set within the confines of a question about what one must do to inherit eternal life. Now, the text says that he was putting Jesus to the test. And so whether or not he was genuinely curious about eternal life, whether or not he genuinely wanted to know how to be made right with God, I'm not sure. But Jesus makes it a gospel issue. Jesus makes it a gospel issue, and he tells him that loving others, that, that being a true neighbor is more than a footnote in our relationship with God. It's the very heart of our relationship with God. And I know what we're tempted to say, and I'm, I'm tempted to say it, there are, there are gospel issues and there are social issues, and that's true. But in this particular case, Jesus will not let us use that as an excuse. He will not let us use the call to love others and separate it from the gospel. Loving others is a gospel issue. The second principle that we considered is a Godward-oriented life A Godward-oriented life is an others-oriented life. When Jesus asked the lawyer, how do you interpret the law? What do you you think the teaching of the law is? He said, love God, love your neighbor. Over in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a very similar question. What is the greatest command? What is the summation of the law? And Jesus said the same thing. Love God and love neighbor. And then Jesus said on these two commands, on these two commands, love for God and love for neighbor depend all the law and all the prophets. Friend, a Godward-oriented life is an others-oriented life. Those are the two principles that we must embrace. Now, let's be honest. Loving God is easy. Hear me out before you you, um, discount that. What I mean is that as Christians, as Christians, we have experienced God's saving love for us. And the natural response is to have love for him. John tells us this in 1 John, that, that we love God because of his first love for us. It is the natural response to one who has been loved this way, to return love. God's love is overwhelming, it's irresistible, and so it, it isn't difficult to love God. I don't mean that we do it well. I don't mean that we always love God as we ought. But what I mean is that God gives us this longing By his love to return love to him. So so loving God for a Christian is the easy part, but loving others, that's another matter. If you have been captured by the love of God and you truly have come to terms with how sinful you are and how gracious and good he is, loving him, That isn't a chore. But loving others, that's a challenge. Loving our neighbor is is a difficult call. And so we're tempted to make excuses. We're tempted to make excuses and to look for an out. We're tempted to parse Jesus' words and we're tempted to try and um, figure out ways around this difficult command. That's what this lawyer does. So he gives the right answer, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus says, you've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And then he asked, and who is my neighbor? It's that question, who is my neighbor, that sets up Jesus to tell the parable of the good Samaritan. Loving God, I'm not saying that we do it well, I'm not saying that we do it as we ought. I'm not saying that we love God wholly or completely. But as Christians, loving God is, is the natural response to being loved. But loving others, loving others is difficult. And so we, we ask the same question that this lawyer asks. So who is my neighbor? In this parable, Jesus is offering more than principles. He's he's highlighting what it looks like to put these principles into practice, and so that's what I want us to consider this morning. Four practical takeaways. The principle, loving others is a gospel issue, and being Godward oriented is to be others oriented. Those are the foundational principles. Now, what does it look like to put those into practice? And so, a few things we'll consider. When you read this parable, who do you tend to identify with? There's a number of characters in the in the, in the parable, who do you identify with? Do you identify with the lawyer? He, he, seem, he seems to be a religious man. At the very least, he's curious about religious matters, but, but he wants to find the easy road. He's looking for the path of least resistance to following God. He, he, he perhaps wants to follow God, but he doesn't want to be challenged. Do you identify with the priest or the Levite? Both of them are, are, are devout. They are, they are devoutly religious, but their, religious does, their religion doesn't count for much when it comes to putting feet to their faith. Do you identify with the Samaritan? You know, on the surface, uh, the Samaritan seems to be the hero of the story. He sees a need, he's filled with compassion, he knows what to do, and he does it. When you read this parable, who do you tend to identify with? I would contend the first person that we should identify with is the injured man, the injured man. But that's, that's the first thing I want you to consider. We must put ourselves in the shoes of the injured man. Friends, Jesus is using this parable to make a greater point. There are some, there are some wonderful principles in this passage. There are some practical takeaways in this passage, and we're going to consider that for the, the bulk of today's sermon. But there is a greater, there's a greater point being made. And the greater point is that we are the injured man and Jesus is the good Samaritan. Jesus is the outsider, the foreigner, the one who's out of place. Who leaves his home to dwell among us. Jesus is the one full of compassion. Jesus is the one who goes to the most lavish lengths to care for us, just like the Samaritan. Did you notice the similarities as we were reading this? Did you notice the similarities between the the kind of lavish grace that that we are given in Jesus and the kind of lavish care the Samaritan provides? Think about it. Jesus sees our need. Jesus is filled with compassion. Jesus binds our wounds and he heals us. Jesus takes care of us by giving us not just a little of his grace, but lavish grace, abundant grace. Jesus is the one who perfectly loved his neighbor by perfectly loving you and me. Now, this may not seem all that practical, but I want you to understand that it is practical because to see others' needs, we must first see our own needs. To see others' needs, we must first see our own need. So it's been said that God has engineered all good works to run on the fuel of forgiveness. That God has engineered and crafted our good works to run on the fuel of forgiveness. And so we must put ourselves in the shoes of this injured man, understanding what Christ has done for us, and that fuels the call to serve others. Uh, in in the book When Helping Hurts, the authors redefine poverty. They, they redefine poverty to help us see that poverty is not primarily about material things. That poverty is always relational. Poverty is always relational, and the impoverished person experiences uh, brokenness in one of four ways, either in relationship to God, themselves, others, or the world. And really, one of the underlying points of that book is that all of us are broken. All of us are impoverished in one way or another, and we will never correctly see how to love others in their brokenness until we see Christ's love for us in our brokenness. So, perhaps your neighbor, perhaps your neighbor is, is materially impoverished, like the injured man here. Perhaps caring for your neighbor is, is, takes the form of physical care, just like this parable. Or, perhaps your neighbor is, is a workaholic, Who neglects his family? He's no less impoverished, but his poverty is different. In all of this, though, we must first see ourselves in the shoes of the injured man, seeing our need and ministering from Christ's supply. What do you have to offer somebody? Christ. We don't offer ourselves, we offer Christ through us. So we must put ourselves in the shoes of the injured man. Here's a second takeaway we discover our neighbors in the course of day-to-day life. Okay, we discover our neighbors in the course of day-to-day life. The the, the lawyer asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? One of the things we see quite clearly is that whoever our neighbor is, we discover them as we just go about life. You know, when you're reading this parable, maybe you think that you have to go around looking for, for someone to love. That Christ is calling you to, to uh, just go, go around like a detective looking for someone to love. But Jesus' point is that the people you are called to love are already in your life and on your road. Let me say that again. The people that you are called to love, your neighbors, are already in your life and on your road. The the priest and Levite were walking down a road, a 17-mile journey, a 17-mile road, a long road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's a road they had likely walked down many times before. We know from history that it was a a rough road, it was a dangerous road, but it was a very common road. And they saw their neighbor in the course of day-to-day life walking down a very common road, and they ignored him. I want to say that we we can, we we should, we should care for people who are injured, truly injured. We should care for the outcast. They have a special place in the economy of God. But the principles in this parable are not limited to those who are injured or outcast. So ask yourself this question, who has God put in your day-to-day life? Maybe you're tempted like the lawyer to ask the question, well, who is my neighbor? I know that I'm called to love others, but who am I called to love? Well, ask yourself this question: Who's in your life? Who's in your life? Is it a literal neighbor that lives next door? A literal neighbor? Is it a coworker in the cubicle next to yours at the office? Is it a classmate and the student at the university? Is it the barista at the coffee shop that you frequent? Who has God put in your path to love? Maybe you you ask this same question. Well, who's my neighbor? I know that I'm called to love others. I know that a Godward life is is an others-oriented life. Well, who is that? Who has God put in your life? In just a little over a week, just about 10 days from now, um, I'm going to travel to Cuba with Jason and some others, and... um, And this will be my third trip to Cuba, and one of the things I've discovered is that it's fairly easy for me to to love others in Cuba. That it's fairly easy for me to to see uh, whom God has put in my path. So the people that we meet, they have all sorts of needs, material needs, spiritual needs, just the need for Christian friendship. And it's not hard for me to see who I'm called to love and to actually love them. But here, in Tulsa, the place where I live and spend 51 other weeks of my life, it's very easy for me to overlook my neighbor. I find it very easy to to not overlook my neighbor when I'm in Cuba and see who has God put in my path, who am I called to love, but it's back home. The very people that God has put on my daily road are the ones that I often overlook. And I want you to know it doesn't take a short-term mission trip to discover your neighbor. It doesn't take a short-term mission trip to practice this command. Now, I think short-term missions is wonderful. I would encourage each of you to go. Go to Honduras, go to Cuba, go to wherever else. But the point of this parable is leading us to, to consider that we don't have to go somewhere else to discover our neighbor and to practice this command. God has put them in our path. Here's a third thing to consider. We must love our neighbors who are unlike us. So it's likely, it's likely that the neighbors you discover in the course of day-to-day life are like you. You probably live and work and play among people that are basically like you. Your life, it's the, um, you know, this principle that we tend to gravitate towards others who are like us, whether it's in the work environment or the social environment or where we live. When I say unlike us, please don't hear me saying um, that people are fundamentally different. That is not true. When I say unlike us, I don't mean fundamentally different. I don't mean inferior, anything of the sort. What I mean is that people are not all The same. Some are white. Some are black. Some are Asian and some are Hispanic. And some are rich and some are poor and some are average, middle-class, blue-collar folks. And some are conservative and some are liberal and some are Sooners and some are cowboys. Those aren't value statements, friends. Those aren't value statements. Different is not bad or inferior. But we must not simply love our neighbors who are like us. The call in Scripture is to love those who are also unlike us. Now we're fundamentally all the same. At a core level, we a core level, we are all the same. Beyond white, black, rich, poor. North Tulsa, South Tulsa, all those sorts of things. Beyond all of those things, we are fundamentally the same. But we tend to gravitate and more easily extend care and compassion and love to those who are like us. The call of this passage is that we must love those who are unlike us. There's something quite striking in this parable. The Samaritan sees someone unlike him and sees him as a neighbor And loves him as such. So I want you to understand the the social dynamic at work in this parable. It's very easy to overlook. Jews and Samaritans did not get along, that's a massive understatement. Jews despised Samaritans. Samaritans took the Hebrew Pentateuch, the Hebrew version of Scripture, and twisted it and distorted it and developed their own laws and customs and worship based upon Hebrew laws and customs and worship. And so so the Jews saw Samaritans as vile beings, and there was no love lost the other way either. In fact, one, one ancient Jewish writing that I came across said, He that eats the bread of a Samaritan is like one who eats the flesh of a swine. Now, that doesn't sound that bad at all to me, actually, because I happen to like the flesh of swine. But do you, understand, do you understand the shock factor here? That's a high insult. Do you understand the shock factor of using a Samaritan? Jesus deliberately used two honorable figures, the priest and the Levite, to illustrate a lack of love, a lack of neighborly interaction, and instead used the most unlikely figure. Now why? Why did Jesus do that? One of the reasons is because we must not only love those who are like us, but those who are unlike us, even if our customs and culture and everything else thinks it's absurd. Michael Wilcock, he's a Bible scholar, he says, imagine, imagine hearing this parable this way. It's, it's hard to sort of translate ourselves back 2,000 years ago into that setting, but imagine hearing this parable this way. A white colonialist fell among thieves, and a black freedom fighter came to his aid. That is what God requires of us. We must not only love those who are like us, those whom God has put in our day-to-day path and, and, and likely the, the, the road you walk and the places you play and the job you have and the neighborhood you live, a lot of people will be at least, at least in external ways like you. God has put them there, you must love them. But we must also love those who are unlike us. And again, that's not a value statement. It's not a a statement of superiority or inferiority. It means that we must see others and see beyond what's easy, uh, easy for us. If we only love others who are like us, then we're not loving our neighbor. If we cannot or do not love people of other races and other languages and of those of different means, then we have missed the heart of what God says it means to love. Here's the fourth thing. We must love our neighbors through deeds of love. So it's it's one thing to discover who our neighbor is. It's one thing for God to open our eyes to the very people that he has put in our path. But it's another thing to actually love them. So the priest and the Levite, they, they saw the injured man. That's interesting. They, they saw the injured man. Maybe they even said a prayer for him as they walked past. But they didn't act as a neighbor because they didn't, they didn't love him through deeds. It's a tremendous shock to the system to see a Samaritan as the example of neighborly love. But that's the first shock. The first shock is these, these two religious insiders, these two devoutly religious people, the people who should have gone the extra mile, the priest and the Levite, See one like them and ignore him. The first shock is that it's a Samaritan who is filled with compassion, sees the need, and and goes the extra mile. The second shock is how he loves him. He lavishly loves him. You know, DC Talk was right back in the 90s. Love is a verb. L-U-V. That was the title of the song. Love is a verb. It is a verb. It's active. The Samaritan tended to this injured man's wounds. Think of how he did it. He used his own meager possessions of oil and wine and he nursed him back to health. He set him upon his own mule and then he walked the remaining miles of that 17 mile journey between Jerusalem and Jericho. He paid out of his own pocket for a place to stay and then he pledged to cover whatever needs might arise. Friends, it's one thing to say that you love others as a neighbor, but it's another thing to actually love them in a neighborly way through deeds, sacrificial deeds. And that's what Jesus says love looks like. Love is demonstrable. It's demonstrable. It's tangible. In fact, Paul says in in Romans chapter 5 that God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Next, in next month's edition of Table Talk magazine, uh, devotional, I, I found the following paragraph. And funny enough, I planned this series and this passage long before I knew the March edition of Table Talk was going to be about the parable of the Good Samaritan, but just the way God worked it out. So I read ahead in the, one of the articles and found this Paragraph. Love in dreams doesn't require one to actually enter the life and pain of another. To hold warm thoughts for someone doesn't require you to enter the life and pain of another. But active love is tangible in expression. It's directed at real people seeking to alleviate real needs. It requires us to move beyond feelings for the faceless. And to embrace others, knowing them, hearing them, and helping them. Loving our neighbor requires that we actively move out and move to and put feet to our faith. Well, then how do we do this? How do we actually do this? How do we love others actively indeed? And that's sort of like asking who the greatest baseball player is in history. There's a gazillion different answers, and many of them are valid. I don't know the answer. I know answers, but I don't know the answer for you. There's no single way. It's as varied as the people that God puts in our lives. How do you put this into practice? How do you love someone indeed? That's going to be as different as the people that God has put in your path and as different as we are. Maybe we love indeed in exactly the same way as the Samaritan in this parable. Maybe it looks just like this. Maybe we see someone in need, physically injured, materially impoverished, broken, on the street, out of luck, and we help them. Maybe that's what it looks like. Maybe we love others indeed by sensing that the the barista at the coffee shop is having a rough morning and just tipping her a little extra that day to demonstrate care and compassion. Maybe we join hands with a person of another race or language and literally walk walk with them as they struggle with inequity and injustice. Friends, to be others-oriented, our eyes must be open, our hearts must be open, and our hands must open wide to demonstrate God's love. As we come to this meal, Again, this parable, there are some principles here. There are some practices here. There are some things that we can take away from it. But it points us to something greater. It points us to something greater. It points us to the person and work of Jesus who does all of this for us. And by his power and enablement gives us the the desire and the ability to love others. This meal points us to the the body and blood of Christ, his body that was injured like this man, but also his blood that was poured out for our supply. It it points us to Christ who saw our need, was filled with compassion, and gave everything of himself for us. And so as we come to this meal, we see our, our need, our longing, and we see Christ's supply. We see what he has done for us. And so it's a gospel meal. But it's also a meal of strengthening, empowering. How do you actually love others this way? How do you love others? It's not within you. It's only Christ working through you to see others as Christ sees them and to love them. And so let's pray as we come to the table. Father, thank you that in this multi-layered parable we see so many dimensions of the gospel and what it means to put um, the gospel into practice uh, here on the ground. We see ourselves in the shoes of the injured man, um, that we were broken and injured and needy and, and no, one, no one could help us or would help us. But Christ came. And yes, he is like us, but he is, he is in other ways so unlike us. He's the outsider who sees us as filled with compassion and tends to us in lavish, abundant ways. God, not as a way of repaying you for that work, but as a way of responding to that, you have called us to love others. Do not just hold warm thoughts, not just say we love others, but to put feet to our faith, and put our hands to the plow and to love others indeed. The people that God has put in our path, the neighbor next door, the man or woman in the cubicle, the classmate, a family member, to love others. But we'll never never have that desire or longing or even the strength to fulfill it apart from Christ. And so would would you work, Christ, would you work right now through this this, uh, sacramental meal to strengthen us, equip us, and encourage us for love?